That's the small talk. Now let's get down to business. Now, your programme. What's the big idea? Well, they've grown to know the Irish much better. We've now got to know how largely their mind works. I moved over here and immediately I had to up my game. I could not have done the job I, I did for quite a number of years in Ireland. I had to go and earn my living in England. I think a lot of it's in my hair. I think there's a lot of Ireland in here. I had an Irish upbringing. 20 years after an Irishman couldn't get a fucking job, we had the presidency. It was some heightened awareness of how hard my tribe had had it in London. No blacks, no Irish, no dogs. Never has a nation so small inspired so much in another. So you could say there's always been a little green behind the red, white and blue. Our family is very Irish, you know. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we have a very special announcement to make at this stage. Would you welcome, please, the wonderful Charlie Thrigo! French filmmaker Sophie Tuscant de Plantier was killed at her holiday home near Tourmore in West Cork in December 1996. A Garda investigation is to carry out a full cold case review of the West Cork killing over a quarter of a century later. I am delighted to welcome Mick Clifford to the Irishman Abroad podcast to talk about the case and his own life. Mick is the special correspondent for the Irish Examiner, author, a winner of the Irish Journalist of the Year Award, and for my money, one of the best investigative journalists our country has ever produced. Mick, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for that very generous introduction, Charlotte. <laughs> <laughs> I never do the introductions in the show. It's so funny because I feel like it does make people uncomfortable when they hear ah, things yeah, yeah, yeah. said about them. But uh, Mick, I've wanted to have you on the show for so long. And I'm so glad that we're going to get an opportunity to talk about, you know, your own journey from civil engineering, as you mentioned to me off the, uh, off the call yeah. in UCC, off around to find yourself a little bit and discovering kind of your interest in writing in Australia. I really look forward to that part of our discussion in the second half of the show. Sure but to start sense. with, let's talk about uh, Sophie Tuscan de Plantier. Do you remember? 1996 and how different the place was at the time when this news came through at Christmas. I do. And a, a bit like, who, who is it? Uh, what was it? What was it? Um, which British comedian was about it? my walk on role in the second world war. I, I had a, a, a tiny walk on role in this from the very start in that I was a sub editor. I had not, I wasn't too long. It was actually my first job in the Star newspaper at the time. And I had this distinct memory of subbing the copy from this freelance journalist who was operating under the name Owen, E-O-I-N, mm -hmm. Owen Bailey in West Cork. And I had a distinct recollection one day of being in the office in the Star and the news editor was in an adjoining desk suddenly looking up and saying, holy shit. This fellow who was filing is um, one is of our guys suspected by the cops. Yeah, and it was that, that that was <laughs> that was qu quite something else. Subsequent to that, I, I very much got involved in following the story. But as you say, nineteen ninety six, Jarlin, Ireland was a very uh, different place. I suppose we were well, perhaps five or six years into taking. Uh, a place among the most developed nations of the world, if you want to put it that way, with the, with the beginnings mm. of um, the opening up of society and the beginnings of economic boom to some extent in the 90s. But there were areas that were still uh, perhaps uh, w w would, would, have, would, have, would have probably been 
how do you put it, sort of, they would have fitted into the image of what perhaps the old Ireland is, particularly to people abroad. And to some extent, West Cork would have been a bit like that. Now, only a bit like it because there was a cosmopolitan element to it because West Cork for a very long time has always been a refuge from people, for example, from the UK, from Holland, um, from Germany, places like that. It was seen as a place to come. It had that vibe that certain rural, rural areas in different parts of the world do that attract people who um, perhaps see, see themselves as not fitting into general society in, in big cities or whatever. So mm. it had that element, but there was also a rural element. But one thing that it was very much in keeping with the general image of rural Ireland was there was, had not been, I think, perhaps going back to the days of the War of Independence in the 1920s, a scenario whereby somebody had been murdered in a very violent manner by an individual who was not more or less immediately identifiable. And in that mm. respect, it was a massive shock. Yeah, I mean, that is something that comes across when you consume any of the content around this, whether it's West Cork, the podcast, which I think we can all agree was an absolutely extraordinary piece absolutely. of broadcasting, never mind podcasting, it's just impeccably put together and how they captured how not inept the police were, but just how unused they were to a situation like this. Were you conscious of that at the time in the sense that the country was uh, taken aback that such a thing could happen in the corner of the country in such a remote area, as you say, somewhere that's just this kind of hermitage for people who or artists and creators from other nationalities. And that, was there a thought that, geez, the guards down there won't know what to do with this? Not really. And I'll tell you why, to this extent, because as I say, it was um, like when I was working there in the media, and sometimes as you, as you would know, the media might get word earlier or something than the general public. And that word came through to the newsroom, even though it wasn't officially out. I would guess in very late December, perhaps early January, the, the, Mr. Plenty's body was found the 23rd of December. But by, I think the date was the 11th of January, Ian Bailey had been arrested. He came out the following day, highly unusual for somebody who was arrested, even for a very high profile case like this. And he identified himself as the person who'd been arrested and the chief suspect. And the nature of people in general is that if it's somebody everybody thinks did it, then that person did it. Mm. And it, it seemed at that point that this was just a question at thereafter of just being able to, um, how do you put it, to, to make the case that mm. this was the chief suspect. And it was just a question of making the case against this man. Now that was looking from the outside. It was only much later when stuff started coming out that we began to realize, hold on, this was not necessarily the case at all, that the, the investigation and the conduct of some of the Gardaí around fingering Ian Bailey was highly questionable. And by extension, the notion that he was the chief suspect for this was also highly questionable. Do you think at all that his behavior, I mean, he's been called everything from an eccentric to uh, I think Eamon Dunphy called him an oddball. Uh, a character is what some Irish people would call a, a, an individual like this. But either way, he doesn't 
respond normally to such an accusation? I mean, I think that I wanted to put to you, is it possible that his response, his abnormal response to the accusation and being pointed at as a potential suspect, perhaps hindered the investigation because the police were led to believe that no innocent person would behave in this way. Yeah, I think there's definitely something to that. I mean, uh, you know, the, 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 what you might say, the average innocent person who's wrongly accused is going to behave in a way that would be very different to how Mr. Bailey behaved. Mm. Now, you have to take into account his character. I've interviewed him a number of times and there's a lot been done, as you mentioned, podcasts and various documentaries. He is, I think I described him once as a man who was not afraid to let his ego blossom. Um, yeah. He's somebody who enjoys the spotlight, notwithstanding if that spotlight is loaded with accusation. He is mm. adamant, I should say, absolutely adamant. He had nothing whatsoever to do with this murder. But at the same time, he doesn't behave in a manner of somebody who has been wronged to the extent of keeping the head down and uh, wishing the whole thing would go away and that mm -hmm. sort of thing. So that definitely added to it. But in terms of the investigation, apart from his personality, one of the issues I think that arise, and I've covered a number of guard investigations, and this wasn't the first or last time it did arise. When the guardie or any police force identifies a suspect early on and focuses all the investigation on that suspect, then other leads quietly or shelved or disappear and therefore go cold. So by identifying him early on, effectively the investigation shut down the possibility that there could be somebody else in the frame for it. Mm. And as we now know, that is eminently possible. I'm not saying it's probably it's eminently possible, but that was definitely a problem in that respect. It's so funny that people have now become so aware of this because of the, um, popularity of these true crime series, such as Making a Murder, that this confirmational bias that you're talking about is something that we all understand that we have in our own lives. And in that way, you know, the police, the guardian of the time nearly can't be blamed because it's, it's such a natural thing to do. And I guess under that pressure, they were making calls with the eyes of the media upon them. Uh, looking to find and looking to solve this as quick as possible. Now, we know that it, it doesn't play out that way. It doesn't get solved as quick as possible. Here we are a quarter of a century later. But what has changed, Mick, to result in this cold case inquiry? Yeah, I said, um, well, a number of things have changed. Uh, one thing about a cold case inquiry, and there have been results from cold case inquiries 20, 25 years later, and there have actually been convictions, but this jurisdictions and others as a result of cold case inquiries. The big difference here, though, is this is not a case that was investigated 25 years ago and was left to gather dust on a shelf, so to speak. It has been examined in many ways, uh, both by police forces in this country, the Gardaí and the French police. It has been parsed and examined in various civil courts as well, including a libel action, uh, a high court action by Mr. Bailey, which was one of the longest high court actions in the history of the state. And it has been examined by the Garda Ombudsman in terms of the Garda investigation into it. So there's been a lot of that. But you ask why the cold case review now? And I suppose there are a couple of factors. 
One is the um, the two documentaries that were out last year. That definitely heightened pressure again once more to try and determine who may well be responsible for this horrendous crime. There was also, and this was pretty crucial, and I attended it, a, a trial in absentia in Paris in 2019. Now, that was highly unusual, and it came about in a highly unusual manner in that the French, under, I think, the Napoleonic law, uh, have the right to investigate the murder of a French citizen abroad. And they did that in this instance with the cooperation of the Guardian, the authorities here. They visited the country, French detectives or what have you. They compiled the case and that resulted in a trial in Paris in 2019. Now, having attended that, Jarlett, I have to say, and with absolutely no disrespect to the French or their system, but it struck me as a process that was, well, it was one that I would certainly find alarming if I was to compare it to any court, a criminal court in this jurisdiction, to me, it appeared more like a, a, a confirmatory hearing of guilt as much as anything. Taking into account, of course, Mr. Bailey did not cooperate with it. But one way or the other. Was it in French, uh, though, Mick? Like, it was. It was in French. Yeah, I, I actually. So how, how were you, your, how was your French? Like, were you keeping shocking. up with it? <laughs> shocking. I, okay. Say, I, I, since about 12 months after I did my leaving, Fado, Fado, it has been shocking. But well, actually, uh, personally, I was very lucky in that uh, I went over and the translator I had, okay. my, my, my wife's uh, brother-in-law is French. She lives here in Dublin and he happened to be in France. So I got the paper to employ him for the week and he was very handy. And, and some of the other yeah. journalists there used him as well. But the, 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 the case, it, it was very surprising in that respect. It lasted four days. It included stuff, for instance, like one detective um, gave evidence. A part of his evidence was I went over to West Cork. I spoke to one of the Irish detectives there. He believes Bailey did it. Now, you know, wow. even merely saying that in, in an Irish court wouldn't be accepted. Um, and there was, uh, along those lines, there was also two witnesses came from West Cork, only two. And for example, th there were witnesses named in it who had since died. They're de they were deceased. And they only gave uh, those who they wanted to come something like four weeks notice. And they told them they'd have to come over uh, sort out their own travel arrangements, accommodation arrangements, and they might get reimbursed after. So that was a kind of approach to the trial. One way or the other, it was a four-day trial. Three judges deliberated for a number of hours. They came back, said Bailey was guilty, and they sentenced him to 25 years in prison. Now, as a result of that, the French authorities for the third time attempted to have Bailey extradited from this country. The difference being on this occasion, they now had, as they saw it, a murder conviction. The Irish High Court, I think they were perfectly right, to be honest with you, under the circumstances, rejected that. And again, for the third time, it was rejected by Irish courts. Following that, uh, Mr. Plantier's son, who, and I should say, Gerald, one aspect to the trial in Paris, Mr. Plantier's son, uh, Jean-Pierre, gave a testimony there, a kind of victim impact statement that was really extremely moving from a, a man who was an adult who spoke about as a 15 year old and only child of Mr. Plantier. There was really the two of them because I think her marriage wasn't great. And it was so moving what he had to go through, what he has endured for up to 23 years as it was then. But in any event, the extradition was not successful. Um, he wrote to the Irish government asking them or to the Gardaí, excuse me, asking them to please reinvestigate this again if they weren't going to extradite. Mr. Bailey also wrote, and he'd written a number of occasions, asking the Gardaí to examine it as far as he was concerned in order to clear his name. 
And you have all those factors coming together. The Gardaí looked at it. And then an assistant commissioner who is pretty renowned for investigations in recent years was retiring there earlier, uh, just at the end of last month. And one of the things he did just before he retired was to announce that there would be this cold case review, a full re-examination and investigation of the whole case again. Wow. Well, the, the actual, as you say, the actual decision to set up the review, this looking into it was six months of examining the file. And seeing whether the investigation could potentially be progressed is the words they used. And that was done under Detective Superintendent Des McTiernan. There are aspects to that that I'd like to just go through. It's a couple of bits and pieces. And one of those that emerged from the documentaries, which are, of course, still available on uh, Netflix and Sky, was this woman, Maria Farrell the woman who spotted a figure on this notorious Kilfather Bridge. Her statement has changed. She's a, 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 a new statement saying that she now recognizes that individual to be an associate of the uh, deceased Sophie de Tuscan de Plantier, her husband's friend. Now, I don't know, Mick, what your attitude is to this, because maybe you can catch people up on exactly how contrasting the evidence that Maria Farrell has given in the past has been. Yeah, and it should be said, like, going back to the initial investigation, we said as the Gardaí, they um, honed in on Ian Bailey. As all of their evidence that they gathered, which the DPP has repeatedly said, did not meet the threshold for prosecution. A huge amount of it was based, or sorry, let me put it this way to you, the central tenet of the whole thing was Maria Farrell's evidence. And Maria Farrell was a local shopkeeper she was on the night that Mr. Plenty had died. She was out with, um, I think it is emergent. She, she's admitted herself with another man. She was having an affair and she was driving at this place called Kielfada Bridge, which was about a mile and a half from Mr. Plenty's home and something similar distance from Ian Bailey's home, where he was living at the time. And she contacted initially anonymously the Gardaí and said she saw somebody there. They traced the call and they found her and she described an individual initially an individual of five foot eight. Now, Ian Bailey is six foot two or three. She changed her uh, description. This man had long black coat, she said. Now, I put it this way to you, Jarlin. If it could be established uh, beyond any kind of a reasonable doubt that her identification was very accurate and very credible, then that would be a huge piece of evidence that anybody under the circumstances of the night in question would have been at that location. However, she maintained that. She maintained the right to, to this libel trial there was in Cork in 2002. She gave evidence at that, which was devastating. And, and that libel trial, even though it was a civil case, had all the character of a murder trial. There was also devastating evidence in that, which was about Mr. Bailey's um, domestic violence against his partner at the time, which was pretty horrendous evidence, to be honest with you, from individuals who'd witnessed it or witnessed the aftermath of it. Anyway, at that, Marie Farrell's evidence was considered to be really devastating to Ian Bailey to effectively put him at this location. Hmm. Then within a year, 18 months, she approaches Ian Bailey's solicitor. She announces that the evidence she gave was false, that in fact, she'd been put under pressure. She claims, and the Gardaí have always denied it, that she was under duress from the Gardaí to give that evidence and that she did not see Ian Bailey there at all. Now, remember, she's effectively saying there that she committed perjury. She gave evidence then at the High Court civil action Ian Bailey took, which reversed 
the evidence she'd given at the libel trial, now it was no longer Ian Bailey she saw there. And as you say, in the most recent documentaries, her evidence is now that the individual she saw was an associate of Daniel, Daniel um, Toscan Duplantier's. Um, I would have to say that I can't imagine any scenario in which her evidence at this stage could be considered credible. For instance, in, in, in the High Court action, when she was asked about that night and she was asked to identify the individual she was with, she got up out of the witness box and walked straight out of the court. Now, you know, she, she was in danger of being contempt of court. She eventually came back. But basing a case around her evidence, I would suggest, would be highly problematic. For example, 2019, despite the changing story, the court of Paris decided it was going to take her original evidence as, as, as the proper evidence. So it's been all over the shop. And notwithstanding this new citing on her behalf, I, I, I would find it difficult to think that any prosecutorial authority would take it um, hugely seriously. I may be wrong in that, but that's just having observed it over the years, you know. Well, let's talk about this uh, gate really briefly here, uh, Mick. You know the gate I'm bringing up. This piece of evidence that that both the podcasts and the documentaries talk about, uh, the gate at the scene of the crime that was declared lost. Now, I've read a couple of things that say that that is not, in fact, the case and that it was disposed of by the National Forensic Laboratory after being held on to for quite some time and decided that it was of no significant evidence. Yeah, I've heard both and I'm not 100% sure, Jarlett, which is, is the correct um, version of it. I mean, it, it, it seems, it would seem very unusual that with a case still open and particularly a high, high profile case such as this, that it would have been disposed of without realizing that it could be of use in the future. I mean, this first came to light to my mind was during in the GSOC investigation into it. But how you lose a gate, I just don't know. And why you would dispose of something with that kind of evidential value is another issue. I do know that, again, just in other cases I've looked at, stuff goes missing in Garda custody. And contrary to what most people think, it's usually more to do with cock-up than any conspiracy. That doesn't rule out no conspiracy in some instances. But there would be no reason in the world why the Gardaí would want to get rid of that gate. Quite the opposite, actually. Any tiny piece of evidence, whatever that would be there, they'd obviously be um, looking to retain it. So it's a bit of a mystery, but it's certainly one that does not reflect well in the Gardaí that it's one thing for a small bag of some evidential value to go missing, but for a gate... A bloodstained um, gate. Exactly, yeah, and, and that was gate, the key yeah. to it. Yeah, that, that was the big uh, element to the whole thing. DNA evidence advancements is something that Ireland has a direct connection to and understanding of the significance of that from the, you know, the number of uh, Irish people abroad, the Birmingham Six specifically, mm. who who understand that these this piece of evidence could have a significance later down the road when they figure out a way to strip it of its contents. Now, I've read a couple of things that said that this awful instrument that was used to uh, take the life of, Tuscan, of, of Sophie, a, a block, a cinder block, uh, could be the key to what they're talking about in this uh, cold case, that there is new DNA methods and techniques that could be applied to this 
block. What have you heard about that? Uh, and what can you tell us? It's quite possible. Any cold case like this, there's two elements. So one is forensic and particularly the advances in forensic over the last 26 odd years. And the second thing is somebody coming forward with some new evidence. What I've heard is that they're placing more emphasis on the possibility of something, somebody coming forward. Therefore, um, you'd have to wonder whether, notwithstanding they have possession of the likes of that, but whether any DNA can be extracted from it at mm. this stage or, or whether it could be valuable in that respect. There have been cases, I can think of one in particular, a, a murder case in this jurisdiction, where in a type of cold case review, the DNA was the crucial piece of evidence, but I'm not sure that um, in terms of their knowledge of it, that would necessarily be the case here at all. I think the emphasis is on the notion that somebody out there might know something, might have thought previously that um, whatever they knew was not of significance or somebody who might have um, forgotten something and remembers it or have a, re a revised opinion of it or somebody who may have been um, in fear about coming forward before and may do so now. My understanding is that they're placing more emphasis on that than any prospect of a breakthrough on the forensic side. But I certainly would not rule it out. Well, before I ask you the final couple of questions around, you know, the remaining questions, the things that have been carried in various different places as the unanswered questions that remain from the podcast and the documentaries around this case, I wanted to just ask about your gut and your instinct. Are you allowed to talk about your gut feeling? Do you feel it worthwhile? Because I've no doubt you must have certain instincts and senses around this case. I do, um, Charlotte. I don't have a definitive one, I'll put it that way to you. But the other aspect to it is, I mean, you mentioned in terms of my gut feeling. I, 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 as an individual sitting in a bar stool or whatever, I could have a gut feeling and share it with a friend or whatever. As a journalist, I think, you know, you'd be obliged to the greatest extent to rely on facts and evidence. Um but I think it is fair to say that there are two camps, effectively, and the two recent documentaries came down on either side of those camps. The the, the Sheridan documentary, the Jim Doc, as, as Bailey calls it, I think it's fair to say it was relatively sympathetic to Ian Bailey's plight. And an indication of that was that the Duplantia family withdrew their cooperation with the documentary because I think they felt it was too sympathetic to him. The Netflix documentary, by contrast, seems to... I think it's fair to say throw greater suspicion on Ian Bailey and an indication of that is that Ian Bailey told me himself he tried to have elements he was in it withdrawn but they refused to do so late in the day but he quite obviously was not happy with that. So those are the two camps and if you were to ask me which camp would I come down in favour of I'd, I'd have to reply that would depend on what day of the week it was because I, really? do, I don't have a definitive opinion in that respect on it. So, so your your sense of this changes week to week. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I suppose that's one way of putting it. Um, to the extent that uh, I have seen, there is no definitive evidence that Ian Bailey is in the frame for this. I think there's no question about that. There is no definitive evidence to that extent. There is certainly not the evidence so far that would be enough to um, place him on trial in connection to the thing. I think there's no question about that. The other side of the coin is 
there is nothing of any major credibility that puts anybody else in the frame. So it's very difficult in, in those circumstances to come down and, and tell you that I have a gut instinct that A, B or C was responsible or somebody whom you could identify as being an associate or their nationality or whatever. So from that point of view, it, to me, it, it, it remains um, it remains out there effectively, you know. Well, one out there theory is this foreigner, uh, someone arriving around Christmas time and uh, like not an assassin or a hitman. I hate those terms, but someone who was sent to do this act. Um, what have you heard around that? And how how plausible is that in the sense of such a small community? Yeah, I mean, look, there's tears have been about. There's been, for instance, sighting of um, a man accompanying Sophie Duplantier from Cork Airport down in a car and, and uh, various descriptions of him when, when she arrived a few days earlier. There, I mean, like, for example, um, I think it might be Maria Farrell, but somebody described somebody as wearing a berry there in West Cork that Christmas. Now, that's the first part of my conversation with Mick Clifford. Come on over to patreon.com forward slash irishmanabroad to hear the rest of that unbelievable extra component to this case the uh, suggestion that someone else an outsider came into the country at the time we'll also look at the cold case timeline like what is the timeline for how this cold case investigation will proceed and we'll move on to Mick's own life his writing uh, his books a force for justice for one and really wanted to talk about the Mars McCabe story uh, of course Bertie O'Hearn the tribunals and the future of journalism. It's all over there on patreon.com forward slash irishmanabroad where you can get access to our full archive, hundreds and hundreds of episodes with the greatest Irish people ever to have lived for a fiver a month on patreon.com forward slash irishmanabroad. <laughs>